stories of imagination are never far. They still reside in us, guiding us ever forward. Join us now as we journey forward into the past. And here is your host, J.C. Riddell. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Forward Into the Past. I'm J.C. Rade, your host and narrator, and today we're heading back into the world of fictional New York City in 1893, as seen through the eyes of Nick Carter, Master Detective. But, before we set that Wayback Machine, a little clarification and a little more history. I need to state for clarification purposes that I am in no way affiliated with Project Gutenberg. I am not receiving any sort of compensation nor sponsorship. I am merely doing this podcast because A. I'm a voice actor and narrator, B. I love a good story, and C. Project Gutenberg provides stories that are free of any copyright, so I am able to read them aloud to you in this way without having to pay any entity or having the entity pay me. Now that that's clear, Let's get on with a little history before we head back into the story. The story that we're enjoying, The Crime of the French Café, was written way back in 1893, and it appeared in the New York Weekly, a publication of the print house Street and Smith. When it was originally published in the New York Weekly, it was a serialized story, meaning that each week you, the reader, would read another chapter in whatever the story arc it was that you were following. And this is the essence of a story paper. Story papers, by and large, were exactly what they sounded like. Newspapers, if you separate the two words, were papers that give you the news. And story papers, likewise, give you stories. Each week, a story paper would give readers in the mid to late 1800s several stories to read and follow. It might be a weekly serial like the Nick Carter stories. Many times it was a short story, or perhaps a long-form poem. There were romances for the ladies, or adventure stories set in the frontier or the ocean for boys and men, and so on. Story papers were sometimes the same size as newspapers. Some were magazine-sized, but they were all approximately eight pages, and all had at least one to two characters that could or did build up a following. Eventually, those serialized weekly stories were collected and reprinted into dime novels, which were cheaper to make due to their size. The print houses were very savvy when it came to collecting these stories. Times being what they were, they knew that, although the story papers were printed weekly, not everyone would be able to afford to buy a weekly paper, although, yes, that was the plan. So, they would reuse almost every single one of their stories many times over in several different options usually following a pattern. A story would appear in a story paper first, then perhaps again in a different edition of a story paper. From there it would be reused in several dime novels, which, unlike story papers, were a little bit less disposable. Nick Carter, who was Street and Smith's most popular weekly character, had his stories repurposed in several ways. From the New York Weekly, his stories jumped into his own weekly magazine, Nick Carter Weekly. Around the same time, many of his older stories from the New York Weekly 
were bundled together in paperback form under Street and Smith's Magnet Library, around 1900, and the New Magnet Library, around 1910. For perspective, the story that we're currently enjoying, The Crime of the French Café, was written for the New York Weekly First back in 1893 in a weekly serial format. In 1894, the story was again serialized in the Nick Carter Weekly magazine. In 1900, the entire serialized story was gathered and printed in Street and Smith's Magnet Library paperback under the title of The Crime of the French Café and Other Stories. It was reprinted under this same title in 1919 under Street and Smith's new Magnet Library. Now, it's the 1900 version that exists in the Project Gutenberg Library that I am humbled to be sharing with you now. <laughs> and speaking about that, we're moving on, going forward into the past, shadowing the case files of Nick Carter, Master Detective. When we left the story last time, Mr. Hammond began to tell his story in order to clear John Jones of any wrongdoing. Then, Mrs. John Jones arrived to provide an alibi for her husband. Nick's young assistant, Patsy, told Nick of his own misgivings on the case, questioning Gaspard's rather quick identifications. After having the Joneses followed, Nick is convinced that Jones is not as innocent as he appears, and finally, while trying to prove his hunch, by climbing a rope tied to the roof down to peer through a window, Nick finds himself suddenly plummeting down the side of a building. Oh, exciting stuff happening now in the next installment of The Crime of the French Café by Nicholas Carter. Chapter 7 The Wardrobe of Gaspard's Friend Nick Carter is hard to kill. A good many crooks have tried to put him out of the world, and a fair percentage of them have lost their own lives in the attempt without inflicting any injury upon Nick. He is a man of resources, and that's what saves him. When one thing fails him, he finds something else to take its place. And so, when that rope gave way, he took the next best thing. That happened to be the sill of the window of Mr. Jones's bathroom. Nick seized it with a grip of iron as he shot downward. The strain on his arms was something awful, but he held on. His fingers gripped the wood till they dented it. In two seconds, he had scrambled through the window into Jones's flat. It was done so noiselessly that the colored servant in the room directly opposite, across the narrow shaft, was not disturbed in her reading. From the bathroom, Nick made his way to the hall and thence to the parlor, where Mr. Jones, to judge by the light in the window observed by Musgrave, had decided to spend the evening. Mr. Jones was not visible when Nick looked into the room. The bedroom adjoining was also empty. Nick ran through the flat but saw nobody. He returned to the parlor, and there stood Mr. Jones under the chandelier. "'Well, upon my word!' exclaimed Jones. "'How did you get here?' "'I might ask you the same,' said Nick. "'But it isn't worth while. "'I've been here all the time.' except when you were on the roof. Nonsense! What should I be doing on the roof? It wasn't what you were doing. It's what you were undoing that bothered me. You were undoing the knot with which I fastened my rope before I descended your air shaft to get a peep at your servant. <laughs> Nonsense again, Mr. Garter. How could I get to the roof? I'll show you just how it was done. In the first place, you saw me coming back to the house 
And you guessed what I was going to do. You went into this room, and Nick dragged Jones into a sort of closet adjoining the parlor. And you got out of that window onto the fire escape. That led you to the roof, and the rest was simple. You saw me go down, and you tried to make me go down farther, and a good deal faster. But you failed, and the game's up. Now, come to headquarters again. What for? For trying to kill me. That's the charge against you. And I haven't got through with you on that other matter. But for heaven's sake, pity my wife. What's the matter with her? She will be crazy when she gets back and finds me gone. One of my men will tell her where you are. Why did you lie to me about her going out? I've a great mind to place her, too, under arrest. You can't do it. It's no crime to dodge a detective. I admit that she did it, but for a very innocent purpose. She has gone to see our lawyer. Hmm. Very well. I will attend to that later. Now, come with me. Nick took Jones to the street. Musgrave got a policeman, and Jones was put in his care. Musgrave remained on the watch for Mrs. Jones, while Nick went to get a report from Patsy, who was shadowing Gaspard. Jones's last words to Nick were these. I am a victim of circumstances. I had nothing to do with the murder in the restaurant, nor with any attempt upon your life. You are doing me a grave injustice. If you were not as blind as a bat, you would see who the real criminals are. These words were pronounced in a calm and steady tone, and it cannot be denied that they produced a great effect upon Nick. If it should prove that I have wronged you, he said, I will repay you for the injury to the limit of your demand. And the detective did a lot of hard thinking while he was walking toward Gaspard's lodgings, where he expected to meet Patsy. Certainly, if Jones ever succeeded in establishing his innocence, he would have won a friend in Nick Carter, whose goodwill is worth a fortune to any man. Nick found Patsy outside the house where Gaspard lodged. I'm dead on to this fellow, said the youth. He's just about ready to flit. He's bought lots of stuff today and is flush with money. A man just went in there with a suit of clothes. Two delivery wagons from dry goods stores have been here. I suppose that the stuff they brought belongs to the woman who is going with Gaspard. Have you seen her? No. She has kept mighty dark. Hello? What's this? Nick drew Patsy more closely into the shadow of the steps by which they were standing. A carriage rumbled over the pavement and stopped before the door of Gaspard's lodging house. Huh. Upon my word, said Nick, it's my old friend Harrigan on the box. The way people keep bobbing up in this case is something wonderful. Perhaps the woman's in the cab, whispered Patsy. On the contrary, the cab was empty. Harrigan got off the box and rang the bell. Nick heard him ask for Gaspard Lebeau. Gaspard was summoned. Off two trunks for you, said Harrigan. For me? asked Gaspard. Yes. A young woman hired me to bring them, and she said it would be all right. You'd pay the price. What sort of a woman? A very gallous French siren with a big white hat and a black plume as long as the tail of me horse. All right, said Gaspard promptly. Bring in the trunks. They were carried up the stairs to Gaspard's room. Harrigan mounted the box and drove away. Follow him, said Nick. Bring him back here in about half an hour. Patsy darted away in pursuit of the cab. Nick walked up to the door of Gaspard's house and rang the bell. He was directed to the Frenchman's room. Gaspard was examining the two trunks. He looked very much embarrassed at the sight of Nick. What's all this, Gaspard? asked the detective. I hear you're going back to France. I? Oh, no. New York suits me much better. But what are these trunks doing here? 
Gaspard looked particularly foolish. They are the property of a friend, a lady. To tell the truth, I hope to marry her. A charming girl, monsieur, and innocent as a dove. Why does she send her trunks here? Ah, that I do not know. It was not agreed upon. Have you any idea what is in them? Her wardrobe? Ah, she is extravagant. She buys many dresses. But then, what would you have when one is young and beautiful? Gaspard finished his sentence with a sweep of the arms. <clears throat> oh, they are heavy, said Nick, lifting one of the trunks and setting it crosswise on a lounge. He took a bunch of keys from his pocket. Gaspard seemed aghast. You would not open it, he cried. Perhaps it won't be necessary, said Nick. This may answer. He drew a knife from his pocket and opened one of the blades, which was sharpened like a very large nutpick. With a sudden movement, he struck this into the bottom of the trunk and then withdrew it. A dark red stream followed the blade when it was withdrawn. The end of the trunk projected over the side of the couch and the red fluid dripped upon the carpet. My God! exclaimed Gaspard. It is blood! So it would seem, said Nick quietly. He set the trunk upon the floor and snapped back the lock with a skeleton key. Then he threw open the lid and revealed a mass of excelsior and scraps of newspaper. This being torn away disclosed a dead and ghastly face, the face of unfortunate Corbett, the waiter. Chapter 8 Tracing the Trunks Corbett's body had been cut in two. Only half was in the trunk which Nick had opened. The other half was not, however, far away. It was in the other trunk. Both trunks contained considerable blood, but they had been neatly lined with rubber cloth, apparently taken from a rubber blanket, and a man's heavy waterproof coat. It was so fitted that the trunks, when closed, were watertight. The neatest job I ever saw, said Nick. Come, Gaspard, tell the story. I swear to you, cried Gaspard, that I know nothing of it. At this moment, Patsy rapped on the door. He had brought back Harrigan. Come in, said Nick, and they both entered. Holy mother, shrieked Harrigan when he saw the open trunks. So help me, gentlemen, I don't know nothing about this business. I ain't in it. I'm telling you straight. You don't believe I had anything to do with this, do you? You brought the trunks here, said Nick. Let me tell you all about it, cried Harrigan, who was so anxious to tell that he couldn't talk fast enough. The French lady struck me on me old place, you know, where I was the other night. She'd talk kind of dago, but I tumbled to what she was a-giving me. This was about half-past seven o'clock. Meet me, she says, in an hour. And she gives me street and number. It was West 57th Street, but there ain't no such number. There's nothing there but a high-board fence. But that didn't make no difference, cause when I got there, her giblets was a-standin' on the sidewalk waitin' for me. Drive over to the corner, says she, and turn round and come back. I did it, and when I got there, she showed me these two trunks. I hadn't seen them before. And she gives me this mug's address and two bones for me fare, and told me to come down here, which I did. And I wish to heaven I hadn't, see? That's a pretty good story, Adrigan, said Nick. Patsy, get a policeman to stay with Gaspard. Patsy brought the blue coat in a few minutes. Now we'll go up to 57th Street, said Nick. Half an hour later they had found the place where, as Harrigan claimed, 
the French lady had delivered the trunks to him. "'I thought, of course, that she'd been fired out of some boarding house,' said Harrigan. "'There's a hash mill there on the right. I had an idea she'd be run out of there.' Nick, meanwhile, had been examining the sidewalk with the aid of his dark lantern. "'Clever work,' he said. "'There are no marks on the sidewalk. The trunks were not dragged. That woman must be pretty strong.' You say you didn't see the trunks when you first drove up. Now, then they couldn't have been here. Where were they? Not in any of these houses. She couldn't have got them out quick enough. Then they must have been behind that fence. There was a little gate in the fence, which Nick opened as he spoke. Ah, here we have tracks, he said. It's all clear enough now. The trunks were brought across this vacant lot from one of the houses facing the other street. The lot is the width of three flat houses, which stand behind it. There are no gates in the fence between the yards of the houses and the lot, but Nick found a wide board that could be pulled off and replaced without much trouble. Passing through the opening made by taking away this board, he found himself in the yard of the middle house. The trunks came from here, he said. They were lowered down in the dumbwaiter to the cellar and then carried through the lot to 57th Street. I'll leave the rest of this job to you, Patsy. Find out all you can, and have as many witnesses as you can get together at the superintendent's office tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock. We're going to have a special examination into this case. The special examination began promptly at the hour named by Nick. All the persons hitherto mentioned in connection with the case, except, of course, the two victims, were present. There were also several witnesses whom Patsy had secured. The case which I have made out, said Nick, is perfectly clear. It begins with Gaspard's identification of the prisoner, Jones. We know that he was at the restaurant when the crime was committed. His name is on the books. In some way, which I am not now prepared to fully explain, the waiter, Corbett, obtained a knowledge of the crime. It was necessary for the criminal to get Corbett out of the way. I saw Corbett get into a cab at the door of the restaurant. The driver, Harrigan, testified to taking him and another man to a point on West 57th Street. He was not sure of the exact spot, but he fixed the locality in a general way. From that point, all trace of Corbett was lost for a time. At last, his body was found. I succeeded in tracing the body back to a place near the spot where Harrigan last saw Corbett alive. I discovered that the body had been removed from a flat house on West 58th Street. My assistant Patsy questioned the people in that house. He learned that the third flat had been occupied by a couple who lived very quietly. The man was often away. I now desire to ask the witness, Eliza Harris, who lives in that house, when she last saw the man in question, the man who rented that third flat. A bright-eyed little woman arose at this and said, I see him now. There he is. She pointed to John Jones. He wore a false beard, she continued, but I know him. And there's the woman. She stretched out her hand towards Mrs. Jones. To their flat, Nick continued, as I have every reason to believe, Corbett was taken by Jones on that night, and there he was murdered, and his body cut in two. It was placed in the trunks. Jones intended, probably, to remove it the next day, but his arrest prevented. Of course, it was necessary to get the body out of the way very soon, but Jones was too closely watched. That work 
had to be done by the woman, and she did it exceedingly well. Nick told how Musgrave had been duped. Now, he continued, nothing remains but to clear up the details of the crime in the restaurant. I shall proceed to state exactly how it was done. At this moment Jones, who had previously remained perfectly calm, uttered a horrible groan and half arose to his feet. He sank back, fainting. And then came a surprising incident, for which even the shrewd superintendent of police had been wholly unprepared. A pale-faced man, who had been sitting beside Nick, arose and cried in a voice that trembled with emotion, Stop! Stop! I can bear this no longer! It was Hammond, the man who begged Nick to save Jones. While Nick had been speaking, Hammond's eyes had been fixed upon Jones's face. He had watched the agony of fear growing upon the wretched man and gradually overcoming him. And when the burden became too great for the accused to bear, Hammond also reached the limit of his endurance. I can't stand it, he cried. You shall not torture this innocent man any longer. What do you mean? asked the superintendent. This is what I mean. The fear of disgrace has kept me silent too long. Now I will confess everything. Do you think I will sit here and let an innocent man be condemned and his wife put to torture to save me from the just punishment of my fault? Never. Listen to me. It was I who took that unhappy woman to the place where she met her death. It was I who wrote that name in the register. I, I and not that innocent man, was her companion. The waiter, Gaspard, is mistaken. I am the man who was in room B. Did Hammond really commit the crime? Is John Jones truly innocent? Does Nick really know who the real murderer is? The answer to these and other questions will be answered in the exciting conclusion to Nick Carter and the Crime of the French Café. Well, I didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> the story has gotten more and more exciting. I can't wait to see how this ends. Thanks once again for listening, folks. As a reminder, please feel free to visit gutenberg.org O-R-G, for other stories like Nick Carter or other fascinating tales of wonder from the past. If you spot one that you think would be a great fit for this podcast, send me a note through the podcast website. While you're there, you can send me a tip or subscribe to be a supporter, purchase a birthday audio or video for a loved one, or read the latest blog entry to see what the next story will be. Until next time, folks, keep sharing the stories and be a good human. <laughs> Bye for now.